Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in wherever you are around the world. And as ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. Uh, shortly, I'll be reflecting on Boris Johnson's latest plans for Freedom Day. Freedom Day, July the 19th, as uh, currently um, projected. And a few reflections on the football and the England team. Losing on penalties, who would have thought? Uh, and then we've got the most fantastic range of questions on a whole load of different themes, but all of them urgently relevant and topical. So, yeah, a lot to cram in. So get running, rowing or bread making or whatever you do while you listen to the podcast or merely sit and reflect and ruminate as some of you do. That too is nourishing. Um, before we start, just a quick reminder, on Wednesday evening, um, I'm going to be at Abbey Hall in Sussex, uh, Sussex, Suffolk. It looks gorgeous. I haven't been before, um, but there are a few tickets available. If you Google Abbey Hall, Suffolk, you will find a way of getting tickets if you're in that area. The Rope Tackle Arts Centre on Thursday in Shoreham's, uh, it's sold out at the moment, but you know, there's often the chance of a few returns. So if you're in that sort of bright and south coast area. And then on Sunday, live at Greenwich Theatre. It's going to be interesting that because um, and there are a few tickets left on the Greenwich Theatre website. Um, I was at the Greenwich Theatre in September and there was a real sense then of being on the edge of this sort of ambiguous crisis in which if you remember, Johnson was um, resisting calls for what was then called a circuit break, in effect, a kind of lockdown. And uh, I'll be at Greenwich Theatre on Sunday, the day before Freedom Day, Freedom Day. So it's Greenwich Theatre on Sunday, July the 18th, and then Freedom Day on the 19th. Uh, so really hope to see you at one of those venues this week. Uh, and I say there are a few tickets for Greenwich. There will be so much to reflect on at all three events. But um, the Greenwich one is on the eve, like Christmas Eve. Sunday, July the 18th. So hope to see you there. Let's begin with uh, Freedom Day as it was once hailed by Boris Johnson. Because... That in itself, well, let's go to the specifics first. Johnson has posed the question, um, if not now, when? And like the posing of many questions, that it's an art form, really, the posing of a question by political leaders, because it leads to certain answers, whereby you say, oh, yeah, well, it's the summer and there are vaccines, so if not now, when? But he's posing the wrong question. The question should be, if now, how? How do you open up while keeping people as safe as possible? And, but that's a harder question to address. And the question Johnson poses, if not now, when, is a childish one. It conveys a sort of childlike impatience with this bloody virus. It's like a child on a journey, car journey, saying, when are we there? Can't we get there more quickly? 
as if there is some way in which you can avoid the hours of roads that you need to travel to get to a destination. And similarly, if not now, when, is a sort of let's brush aside this raging virus and uh, open up without any qualifications. And yet, of course, there are tonal qualifications that have become more urgent uh, as the virus erupts. The virus, incidentally, which has erupted in the UK at uniquely high rates because Boris Johnson decided himself not to close the border with India when he hoped to go over and see Modi and start negotiating a post-Brexit trade deal with India. But that is, it's a related but another issue. Um, and so things will open up in the name of freedom. He once called this Freedom Day. And what is so interesting about the use of this term freedom, and it's used very effectively uh, by conservative leaders, always has been in different ways, is that actually what it means is very precise. It is the freedom for the irresponsible to behave irresponsibly. Because if, as he is urging, uh, but it's only urging now, and advice, in inverted commas, that responsible people continue to wear masks on tubes, trains, buses, etc., crowded indoor areas, it is freedom for the irresponsible not to do that. And in granting that freedom, uh, something very interesting happens. Lots of people will worry that if they get on a train or a bus or a tube or whatever, they will have the bad luck to be near a bunch of people who have decided not to wear masks. Now they no longer have to do so. And as a result of that fear, they will not go on public transport um, it, it, because this might happen to them. So their freedom, which they have been currently exercising, knowing that it is illegal not to have the masks on, will suddenly be constrained. Their freedom will be less on Freedom Day. And this term freedom, it, as I say, who is against being free? That's why it's such a potent term. And Labour leaders should seize it and use it. They have tried in the past, in the 80s, that decade where Thatcher, Thatcherism was ideologically uh, dominant uh, to the point where uh, poor old Neil Kinnock and others couldn't really get a look in with an alternative argument. The then deputy leader of the Labour Party, Roy Hattersley, wrote a good book, actually, called Choose Freedom. I think I'm the only person who's ever read it, um, and it was good, but it was so out of fashion. But it was a clever attempt to claim the phrase freedom for uh, a view from the left, from the Hattersley perspective. And on this, too, uh, Johnson's view of freedom is really a freedom for selfish people to fail to act in a collective way if they can't be bothered to and don't want to. Um, whereas a collective 
freedom will mean the government taking some responsibility to impose certain legal constraints so that we're all free to travel even when things are crowded because we are compelled to wear masks and that compulsion frees people to be uh, able to go about more than they were in the full lockdown. And this has many interesting consequences. So, for example, I was thinking today about the smoking ban. Now, the smoking ban was introduced by the last Labour government, and it was the subject of quite a lot of nerve-wracking debates internally. Uh, Tony Blair was very fearful of appearing authoritarian in any way, and he once said in a revealing phrase, the voters gave us permission to introduce the smoking ban. In other words, it was only when it became popular that they felt able to do it. And it was controversial at the time. But what it has done is it has freed people up who are non-smokers to enjoy going to pubs, restaurants, knowing that they won't be inhaling a load of smoke from the smokers. It was an act of freedom which has also saved many, many lives and has eased the burden on the NHS to some extent because many more would have fallen ill by smoking or by being close to smokers. So it was an act of liberation. But it was also what Johnson would call a state diktat. They banned smoking in certain public places. Uh, he wouldn't have done it. Uh, I'm sure he opposed it at the time and he'll have knocked off some column for the Daily Telegraph being paid about half a million for with a few jokes in it and saying don't the state nanny state nanny state shouldn't tell us what to do. Um, so there would have been no smoking ban under him and similarly this is a dangerous point again in the pandemic for England and it follows a very clear pattern. Uh, at the beginning, as we know, in March 2020, uh, go to shake hands, go to football matches, go, to, go down to the pub. Um, and, you know, again, I remember him saying then, it's personal responsibility. It's nothing to do with the state. It's the one thing he kind of believes in profoundly. Um, other beliefs of his can be fickle. We know that about Europe and other things. Um, but on this, there seems to be a quite profound libertarian instinct. I mentioned September already. Uh, scientists pleading for a lockdown of sorts. Let the bodies pile high. Let the blah, blah, blah. And then that phase in the build-up to Christmas, I mean, darkly comic. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Accusing Starmer of wanting to ban Christmas and all the rest of it. And then, of course, he had to retreat. And in the build-up to Freedom Day, July the 19th, we've had it all again. This is irreversible um, and all the rest of it. Already having to be tonally qualified while in practice still going ahead. So let's see. I mean, there is... Because he can't think through consequences of policy, he is still basically a columnist who can deal with the day's deadline. And when you're a columnist, you file and that's it. Um, there are no more consequences most of the time anyway. Um, but in policy, 
there are consequences all the time. As you know, it's one of my favourite words in politics, consequences. And he can't really think them through. And there seems to me so many areas of chaos. I think he thought when he announced this Freedom Day uh, that the vaccine would be a triumph, that the variant would be more manageable than it is proving to be, and that it would be a celebratory moment of freedom and opening up. Instead, there are question marks about whether people should return to work in full. There are question marks about the mask wearing and the degree to which it will be adhered to after July the 19th. There are ongoing confusions about travel, uh, the the fear of essential key workers being, what's the word, bleeped or whatever on the app, and whether that app can be adjusted to the degree required so that some of those who've been double vaccinated can indeed work, and so on. Um, this is going to run and run. And uh, he, Johnson, is wholly unsuited for this kind of crisis. I mean, the works of Dominic Cummings uh, might be unreliable and might be motivated by desires of revenge and vindictiveness partly. But they also, in an astonishing way, shine a light on the unsuitability of this figure to lead, and especially at a time of national crisis. It is unique what Cummings is doing, um, revealing exchanges, emails, texts, um, while the relevant prime minister is still in power. And he, the chief special advisor, was the most influential figure across government after Johnson. Um, I, I think because, you know, now everyone's trying to discredit him. Uh, uh, some of us lot discredited him after Barnard Castle and Brexit. Now Johnson and co are trying to discredit him. So there's limited space for Cummings. But his accounts ring true to me. Um, and they're worth reading. I mean, you do have to subscribe to his bloody substack or whatever it's called. Uh, but I think they are illuminating and they make sense of the chaos, uh, the external chaos that we are all witnessing and seeing. Um, but anyway, let's see how it all pans out. One thing for sure is that uh, Boris Johnson, if England had won the European Championship, would have hoped for a further boost in the polls and perhaps it would have come. But I suspect the sort of feel-good factor associated with the England team is more limited than mythology and frenzy and hysteria allows for. It's quite interesting. It, it all began, I think, like a lot of political assumptions with Harold Wilson, curiously, because Harold Wilson has sort of almost been airbrushed out of history, but he kind of worked he used to joke um have you noticed england only win world cups under a labor government and of course he the, the, the that that still remains the case uh the only uh, victory in 1966 uh incidentally a victory after labor had won the 66 election so it made no difference in 66 and then wilson wondered whether Labour lost the 1970 election unexpectedly because England were, again, unexpectedly knocked out of the World Cup by West Germany in uh, a few days before the election. 
They were 2 0 up and lost 3 2. I was a young kid watching with my, I think we had a German au pair. And uh, God, I was more passionate then than I am these days about uh, the fate of the England team. Um, so, so there was a kind of uh, there's assumption around, you know, Alistair Campbell writes in his diaries that he sensed John Major ached for Labour, uh, for Labour, for England to win the um, semi-final of the European Championship in 1996 at Wembley. Uh, he was in dire trouble as Prime Minister and assumed that this would give him a boost. Um, and on it has gone, you know, David Cameron pretending to be a passionate. Aston Villa supporter and mistaking them for West Ham in reality and so on uh, and Johnson who's not interested in football parading himself in the St George's flag and the England shirt and all the rest pretty Patel putting on an England shirt she would have deported half this team um, but I wonder whether there is any great significant uh, connection between politics and football or indeed politics and sport. Uh, Ted Heath won in 1970 with no interest in football whatsoever. Uh, Gordon Brown lost in 2010, a passionate, the most passionate football follower of all modern prime ministers. He could recite the Wraith Rovers team from 1951 um, off by heart and pluck any other year he could do it. He still lost to David Cameron. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, passionate Arsenal supporter, Keir Starmer, an Arsenal season ticket holder who plays five-a-side football every Monday night when he can make it. Um, that he's in behind in the polls, and Johnson, who pretends to have this interest, is well ahead. So I think the connection is hugely exaggerated. And if you want the most vivid example of this, the London staging of the Olympics in 2012 was portrayed as this great totem to a progressive, liberal, internationalist, modern UK. And a few years later, uh, the same country voted for Brexit and the then mayor of London was leader of that ugly parochial Brexit uh, campaign sloganizing and pretending Turkey was about to join and all the other things that went on. Uh, so there really isn't any direct connection between politics and sport and football. And so even if England had won and we were, you know, everyone was celebrating and some Brexiteers were saying this shows that we can conquer Europe alone and all the other things that would have gone on. Politics is about one thing. And us lot on this podcast know how that one thing is complicated and multi-layered. And football is about 22 players on a pitch battling it out to win a game. And although hysteria and feverish attention accompanies the second, compared to electorate indifference to the first, um, there is no crossover in the end, I don't think. But you may all disagree. Which brings me to your questions. And we've got we've got some football-related ones. Um, Stephen Gross sent me in something to cheer us all up, those of us who are depressed about England. I'm not, actually. I, I, well, I am depressed about England, the country. The, the, I'm not about the football, frankly. And I speak as a Spurs season ticket holder, but that means I'm used to disappointment. Um, anyway, Stephen... Uh, has sent me in. I don't know whether he wrote by lunchtime, oh booze. Is that a private eye thing? Anyway, 
Um, I'll just read it to you. Taking back control, Johnson announces UEFA referendum. The government has announced that it will be holding an early referendum on England's future relationship with UEFA. Speaking after last night's heartbreaking defeat in the European Championship final, the Prime Minister said it was clear that the Union's dogmatic adherence to the strict letter of the rules of football was no longer working in England's interests, insisting that the ball should cross the line between the goalposts to constitute a goal was clearly intended to punish England, and it was time to restore a level playing field. During what he described as the grace period, pending the outcome of the referendum, England would be adopting a specific and limited interpretation of the rules of the game, redrawing the opposition goal line at their six-yard box. This common-sense approach would mean that any England incursion into the box would be a goal, and any fouls on England players in the opposition half would merit a penalty. To ensure fair play, all future games would be refereed by Lord Frost and members of his immediate family. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> when I said there was no link between football and politics, you can soon enter a world where the echoes are profound. And, oh, yeah, and thank you for that, Sue. I could do with a laugh, not just because of the football. I mean, politics is so depressing, and this pandemic isn't over and yet we're about to pretend it is and frosty by the way on the frosty front did any of you see him um being interviewed by uh members of the northern ireland assembly the other day and one of them just went for him uh, uh she said it was it, it sort of went big on twitter you're you know because frosty's trying to disown the protocol that he and other and Johnson negotiated and is a direct consequence of their decision to place the border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, something that Theresa May had decided was not feasible. Um, so he did it because she decided that and he needed another route. Anyway, old Frosty, who sort of, you know, has risen from being in charge of the Whiskey Association, uh, to a pivotal figure in Johnson's government, you know, invited to the G7 in the House of Lords, a sort of classic rise of a mediocre courtier from a naive prime minister who just likes having people around who agrees with him. Uh, but this uh, member of the Northern Ireland Assembly, who also was a member of the European Parliament, said, your fingerprints are on every page of that protocol. None of us trust you, etc. Oh, and he looked on as like a kind of naughty schoolboy finally being caught out. And fleetingly, the courtier's fantastical rise was being exposed. It was a very interesting uh, moment. Um, but who knows, maybe Frosty will be... Um, uh, refereeing all future England games under <laughs> post-UEFA, post-Brexit Britain uh, rules. Uh, thank you for that. Um, yeah, Helen Gordon writes, uh, do you remember last week I was talking about, and I know it's contentious on some levels, but the mythology of opposition leaders taking on their party, contriving huge rows for successful definition and vote winning assertions of strength uh, 
I argued the opposite, that contrary to mythology, successful leaders of the opposition, electorally speaking, affect or contrive a unity in their party, partly so they can accuse the government of being divided. But Helen Gordon writes, I wonder, she's not making, she's the bread maker, one of the bread makers with very detailed recipes, not making bread at the moment, she says, but I wonder about your assertion about keeping uh, a party unified in opposition, particularly when there is a pending fight that will have to be had, in this case, about, say, Jeremy Corbyn's suspension, whether or not the leadership um, should do so. If, if, even if that is somehow resolved, what are your views about the no enemies on the left, quotation marks, that part of the long Corbyn legacy is that there are still party members who don't subscribe to the tenets of democratic socialism and who egged on George Galloway's campaign in the by-election in Batley and Spen. Surely even an inclusive approach to party membership shouldn't stretch to those who basically don't accept what the party stands for. Well, the answer to that, Helen, is those party members will leave um, because Keir Starmer's Labour Party won't be acceptable to them and they can leave. And that is uh, the answer. In terms of um, Corbyn's suspension, I would uh, reinstate him. Um, that's always been my view, and I know you disagree with it. Um, it was a huge move to suspend the immediate his immediate predecessor. Um, and I think bringing him back in, if he did it carefully... Uh, would be an example of a unifying measure. It has to be done carefully. But Corbyn, before he was suspended, was quietly getting on with life in his constituency and on his allotment. Um, he wasn't causing Starmer trouble at all and hadn't really been on the national consciousness since he resigned. And the suspension gave him a stage and became a symbol, really, of a divided party again. So I don't think um, divisions are the way to do it, nor do I think I'm sure he probably will do this, kind of contriving a big row saying at the Labour Party conference will help him in the same way as it didn't really help Neil Kinnock in the end. He had to do it. Um, militant tendency had to be dealt with in the 80s. Um, but everyone thought, oh, yeah, this means Kinnock is now seen as prime ministerial. But actually, all those praising his attacks then said the problem is Labour are too divided and Kinnock has spent all his time looking inwards rather than outwards. That's the problem. Um, I'm not saying whether it's a good or a bad thing as a matter of principle that you challenge your party. But if you want to win elections, the duty of a leader is to weave a sense of unity. And it is weaving. It's, it's artistry. These are huge, broad churches, these two big parties. Not the Tories so much now because Johnson kicked out a lot of the um, uh, so-called moderates like Che Guevara, Phil, Phil, old Phil Hammond and all that lot. Um, although, well, he suspended the whip. Um, okay, thank you, Helen. Get back to the bread. Uh, Noah Keek writes... Um, I'm writing to ask to what extent you think the issue of planning reform could help or harm the Lib Dems and the Conservatives. On the Lib Dems, they use local opposition to HS2 and planning reform to great effect in the Chesham and Amersham by-election. This is despite the party nationally supporting HS2 and house building. How long do you think that can remain sustainable? 
Similarly, uh, you've spoken frequently about Boris Johnson's desire to level up a nebulous phrase, parts of the country that voted for the Conservatives. For the first time in December 2019, though large infrastructure projects, uh, through large infrastructure projects, how will the Conservatives square widespread planning reform with managing to hold seats in the home counties? Yeah, well, this the, the uh, on the Lib Dem front, uh, frankly, they've always done this. Uh, they campaign locally to win, irrespective of the party's national position. So some Lib Dem candidates in the southwest. Um, adopted quite Eurosceptical positions, even though the Lib Dems nationally were the most pro-European party. So they'll carry on doing that kind of thing, and uh, because they are subjected to less scrutiny, and I, I, they ache actually for more attention and scrutiny, they will be able to carry on doing it. For the Tories, it is a much bigger challenge um, that you want more houses, you want more infrastructure, but as we saw in the by-election, uh, that can cause you real problems uh, with some of your supporters. I don't think um, we've had evidence from uh, voters from that constituency uh, in Chesham uh, that um, we, we've had emails to this podcast saying it was for other reasons they didn't vote Tory and voted uh, Lib Dem in Chesham and Amersham. Um, not just the planning reform, but clearly it's one of the big problems with levelling up. With levelling up, you have to build, uh, including houses. And in some parts of the country, that is never popular. As Noah says, it's the whole thing, nimbyism, that phrase has been around for decades. Not in my backyard. Thank you very much. Alan Evans has an interesting question. Um, this is a bit of fun, bit of fun time. We've been going for nearly half an hour. Now's a bit of fun. Well, sort of. You, you'll see what I mean. Alan Evans writes, Since your time covering politics, are there any notable politicians that you thought were in the wrong political party during their time in Westminster? Or any politicians whose political career could have been significantly boosted by joining another party? It's a good question because on the whole, people join political parties for a reason. Even those, I've already said, these two big broad churches, Labour and Tory, um, have uh, kind of boundaries. They are broad enough that people from Tony Blair to Jeremy Corbyn join Labour for reasons that they thought through at the time and others, you know, Ken Clark to uh, Norman Tebbit joined the Conservative Party. Um, the, there are kind of some, some binding beliefs on the whole that attracts people to one party or another. I kind of wonder in the coalition era, they, weren't, well, they were never going to do this, by the way, but, you know, the likes of uh, Charles Kennedy, to some extent, Paddy Ashdown, Shirley Williams, were deeply uncomfortable with elements of the coalition. So, um, although I don't think for a second they thought of switching parties, they you know Shirley Williams had already done it once; she wasn't going to do it again. Um, they, they, they were uncomfortable. We know about Rory Stewart, David Gork, and all the rest of it. Probably they would have been comfortable with the sort of Cleggite liberal democrat wing um some of the kind of ultra blairites in labor wanted 
Cameron to win uh, against uh, Gordon Brown and to some extent against Ed Miliband. Uh, I think they were wrong to take that view, but it shows the degree to which Tony Blair, by the end of his time as Prime Minister, was talking a lot about political cross-dressing, that um, people were taking, assuming the clothes to follow the metaphor of other parties. Um, and I think he was all over the place at that point in his uh, leadership. Um, and that, well, he still believes it, that there's no such thing as a left and right anymore. It's open versus closed, as if he has come up, con, pro, come up with a new insight. Open versus closed has always been a divide in British politics. Corn laws was about open versus closed. Tariff reform, open versus closed, and so on. But um, anyway, on the whole, when defections happen, Alan, who asked the question, um, they are big events because they happen so rarely. But it's, it's got me thinking. Um, what do you all think? Can you think of people who are in the wrong party and should be switching? Um, do let us know. It's a good game. We'll have a bit of fun with that. Um, uh, thank you. Now, that was the fun bit. Uh, back to serious stuff, or maybe not. Who knows? Gillian Oliver writes, Hi hello, Gillian. Gillian uh, says, enjoyed this week's podcast, eating fish and chips in the rain by the seaside in Lytham St. Anne's. What a, what a glorious romantic image you conjure up, Gillian. Uh, oh, she, oh she, uh, Gillian loved the King's Place event. Thank you very much. And she has bought a ticket to Rock and Roll Politics live at uh, the Witham in Barnard Castle in November. Uh, I think those tickets are now online for all of you in that region of the Northeast. Um, <laughs> she says she's looking forward to the Rock and Roll Politics recipe book in time for Christmas. Yeah, well, I, I'll. I'll I'm get working on that, Gillian. Um, be a few bread recipes at the very least. Um, she was saying, I was interested to hear you talking about football and politics. Blimey, have I done it before? Done it again today, Gillian, but this is in the context of England being out. And she, Gillian noted that Gareth Southgate seems to be a leader with a storytelling teaching style and how that worked, as you say it should, not only winning his team's affection, but the nation's. And I'm reading Mark Carney's new book, the, he, the former governor of the Bank of England, in which he also sets out how leaders must engage, explain, and emote. Gillian uh, goes on to say, I was on the Labour battle bus in 1997. I was producer to ITN's brilliant political correspondent, Mark Webster. I remember Mark Webster. In fact, I think, I might be wrong, Gillian, but I think he went on to work for the Lib Dems, actually. And during the course of that campaign, Tony Blair kept explaining and engaging to a strict minimum kind of script. In fact, I read later that Alex Ferguson was advising them to say as little as possible as the Tories were making mistake after mistake. And the task for Blair Campbell was to keep quiet and let them. Um, anyway, so she was thinking with Keir Starmer, is the requirement to teach and tell stories different for a leader in opposition? Uh, well, uh, if you're implying that near silence is enough, definitely not. Um, and I, I, my memory of that 97 campaign, you, you witnessed it at first hand, but I was 
writing columns on it and saw Blair a couple of times during the campaign for a coffee, uh, did an interview with him just before it. They were saying quite a lot, but it was cautious, the messaging. The clever thing about that 97 campaign was Blair's ability to make the cautious sound radical and exciting. So the manifesto was incremental, but he claimed that incrementalism was an act of radical change-making within the Labour Party. So the messaging was very thought through and precise. And like politics is like a symphony. It's all got to cohere into one composition. Um, so the policies and the tonal messaging chimed uh, very effectively. Now, at the time, I thought they were too cautious, and I think that's widely agreed to be the consensus now. They could have been bolder in 97. But I don't think they just let the Tories dominate. But you were on the battle bus. In terms of Keir Starmer, I think he does have to be a storyteller. Uh, in, in, you quote Gareth Southgate. He, Gareth Southgate did tell a story about the England team, uh, backed up by the way the England team behaved. Um, and the storytelling, we've talked a lot about Keir Starmer, so I won't go into it now, um, but there are many stories to be told, as I say, beginning with a clear, distinct approach to this junction of the pandemic, but then, of course, much more widely in the months to come. Gillian, thank, I hope you had enjoyed those fish and chips in the rain, and uh, I can't wait to meet up with you in uh, Barnard Castle in November, and many more of you, I hope, from... Uh, uh, the northeast and God knows, God knows where people travel miles to get to these ones in King's Place and Greenwich and so on. Um, thank you very much. Let's have one now from Galway as we continue our move uh, across uh, out of the UK. Uh, Gavin Collins writes, hello from Galway on the fresh west coast of Ireland. Uh, thank you for the podcast. Um, I'll add an activity to bread making and running. I get my rock and roll politics podcast fixed whilst deadheading roses and mowing the lawn. Deadheading roses sounds quite sort of dramatic um, but when you add in mowing the law it has a kind of reassuring comforting feel to it um, so this is about conservatism and environmentalism would you agree the conservative party in the uk is a surprisingly pro-climate action party whilst the republicans in the us mostly don't even accept climate change as real and why might you think this is the case yeah, it is interesting because there are parallels quite often in British politics between the Republicans and the Conservatives and the Democrats and Labour. You can see now Labour planning to hide behind Joe Biden's radicalism and Keynesianism to propose some fairly radical measures themselves. And there are and continue to be echoes with the Trump republicanism and Johnson's conservatism in some respects, not all, of course, but but the, the revisionist theory that there are no echoes, I just don't think uh, stand up to much scrutiny. But you are right. There is theoretical interest and to some extent practical interest in climate change. Um, though we need to keep that under constant scrutiny. Remember David Cameron affected a passion for it when he first became Tory leader 
uh, vote blue, go green was his main slogan. And by the end, he was asking as prime minister, what's all this green crap we're dealing with via the Lib Dems and so on. And Ed Davey, who was the relevant climate change secretary, environment secretary, uh, came up again and again against obstacles to dealing with climate change. Um, and when you unlock the sort of Boris Johnson language around it, which I think is sincerely expressed as to the means through which various objectives will be met and it's imprecise. Um, but it is a difference, and it's a difference to do with, um, well, lots of things, really. The Republican Party at the moment in the U.S. is going through a sort of uh, identity crisis brought about partly by Trump, but pre-Trump too, where it moved to a position of such sort of anti-state interventionism. Uh, it kind of forced them to change the way external events were happening. So the problem with climate change is, if you believe it, you have to intervene very actively. And if you don't believe in interventionism, it's probably best to pretend climate change isn't around. Um, but no, that's not true of all of the Republican Party, but it's going through a period of um, identity crisis, uh, deeper than it had before. Let's just carry on. Are the Tories out of sync with conservatism in this respect, or is the Republican Party just completely wacky? I think it's more of the wackiness, actually, um, in that respect. Would you agree, this is continuing the theme, I'm reading all the questions because it's an interesting and different theme. Would you agree that whatever one might think about David Cameron and leaving aside the Brexit fiasco, his most important legacy might turn out to be the party's meaningful support for climate action? Well, I've talked about that. And um, as I said, again, it's worthy of scrutiny. There was a theoretical radical shift um, when he was leader of the opposition. Uh, but he was much less enthusiastic, though not wholly unenthusiastic, as Prime Minister. So language, policy, delivery, uh, you know, for those few of us who are interested in politics, we need to follow it very, very closely. Uh, Steve Petrie writes, Unusually this week, I didn't listen to your podcast as soon as it dropped into my inbox, but saved it for my Monday morning run, 10K. So it finished well before I did. Well, Steve, you know, there was quite a long podcast last week, so you are reassuringly slow at your 10K. Um, but uh, well done for doing the 10K and even more. For listening uh, during, for listening to the podcast as you run, uh, in an interesting discussion of Johnson's fickleness at King's Place, you speculated that Johnson might tire of Lord Frost. Under what circumstances might this happen? And Steve says he struggles to find the um, circumstances. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean because they think alike at the moment, or seem to do so, and it may be that the aggressive frosty Johnson approach, you know, we'll break the law if we have to, we'll undo the protocol if we have to, the protocol's nothing to do with us, it's all a fault of these beastly Europeans and once again we stand strong against Europe and all this kind of stuff. If it's, if it's all working electorally without harming relations without the United States, that one a big if, 
um, maybe he will keep Frosty. But Frosty is not, he's not a trained politician. He's a very poor communicator. He falls into traps that, because of the pandemic and England and all the rest of it, haven't been noticed, like his thing about telling Elton John he used to sell singles before we were in the common market so he can sell them still now. Completely stupid response to Elton John's campaign with others to get access to that uh, travel around the European Union as musicians were able to do in the past. So Frosty, I think, could become vulnerable if Johnson decides he is trouble rather than a great sort of populist prop on which to base his next anti-European campaign if he feels that that could lead him to an election victory. If he decides Frosty is a problem, he will drop him. Look at old uh, Cummings, um, who he revered and adored and looked on as a genius until he dropped him. Um, and Frosty has not got half the talents of Cummings, um, but can be equally as troublesome. So I think this mediocre courtier uh, will at some point be in in trouble but but let's see you may be right see that they dance together to another election victory based on a battle with europe god what a world we're in <laughs> and finally graham hughes writes hi steve i'm a defector oh yeah graham's a defector from another podcast i won't go into the gory details but i can't I, yeah graham yeah it rings several bells from my listening of other podcasts. I won't go to the details of the defection, but defections in politics and in podcasts are always exciting, thrilling and profound. So thank you for joining the ever-expanding rock and roll politics community, Graham. Welcome, as leaders of parties say to those when they defect. Um, he said, you made a comment of the, about the surprising result of the 1970 election. It was. Most people, including Harold Wilson, thought Labour would win. Anyway, Graham writes, The pirate station Radio North Sea International anchored off Clacton before the election and broadcast endless conservative propaganda to Essex and the South East. Their aim was to promote legal commercial radio in the UK, but it had the desired result, I feel, of swaying many floating voters to the Tory cause in many marginal seats. The government was obviously alarmed, as for the first time ever, it jammed the broadcasts. Well, I, that's an interesting theory about the 1970 election, uh, Graham. Um, it's not one I subscribe to because, actually, in the end, I think radio in Britain, unlike America, has very little influence on elections compared, certainly, then to the newspapers. Now, the newspapers influence the BBC, but that's a slightly different thing. Um, to, um, but I, I take your point. They, I remember they tried to jam it. I've read about it, um, but I don't think it. They that was a factor in in the election. But I might be wrong. I'm not the world's greatest expert on the 1970 election. Um, I was way. I was around, but I was about. Well, I won't say how old, but not very old. Um, but thank you for a whole new dimension to an election which remains something of a mystery. You know, and this even then, charisma mattered. You know, it's not a new thing. And there was Ted Heath. He had lost in 1966, slaughtered uh, 
by Harold Wilson. One in 1970, when Labour began the campaign well ahead. As I said at the beginning, I don't think it was anything to do with England losing in the World Cup to West Germany, as it then was. Um, but a lot of things had happened in that period, Graham. Devaluation in 67. Prime Ministers rarely recover from devaluation. Look at John Major with the ERM and so on. A lot had gone wrong. Um, but perhaps one of the things was... Uh, the pirate station Radio North Sea International, anchored off Clacton. Anyway, look, thank you so much, everybody, for joining in. I uh, hope you've got through your exercises or your ruminating as you have listened. Well, next week, where will we be? Either the build up to Freedom Day or in it or whatever. Uh, no idea what we'll be discussing next week, but keep the emails coming in. I should at this point, right, just hold on a second, whatever you're doing, get a pen for those of you who don't know the email address. And remember, we've got that other thing. Are some people in the wrong party? If so, who and where should they be? All that kind of stuff. Um, let me get you the email address. If you just hold on a second, I still don't know it off by heart. Oh, it's pathetic. Here it is. Um, Steve Rick 14 at iCloud.com. That's Steve Rick, then the number 14 at iCloud.com. And I'll uh, be, as I say, uh, Rope Tackle Theatre in Shoreham on Thursday, Greenwich Theatre next Sunday. Things are moving so fast, I'm not sure yet what the themes will be or our predictions, but there will be a lot of fun as we delve deep. Um, not just fun illumination uh, collective illumination so hope to see some of you at those live events and yeah oh if you can leave a review on itunes or whatever that it's called uh, that would be great and do subscribe so you get this thing automatically somehow all of this makes it more accessible to an ever-growing audience thank you very much have a great week and see you all next week Football's not coming home, but Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast, will be coming to you every week. Thank you. Bye.